Well, we stay in Philippians, obviously. I'm going to read uh, this time from chapter 2. Well, I'll start in chapter 1, verse 27, and we'll read on into some of chapter 2. Chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count the other, others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Just a couple more verses. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray in the name of Jesus for the help and inspiration of the Holy Spirit that, Lord, what we do in this time might be of real benefit and help to us in our lives, in the groups we serve. And, Lord, as uh, it pervades right through this great church for your glory, please, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, as I said in the uh, introduction to the first talk, one of the reasons Paul wrote to this church was not only to say thank you for your gift, but also he had heard there was trouble. And that trouble was division 
And when you read the whole epistle through, you, may, you come across this appeal to a couple of women called Eudia and Syntyche, who he honors by saying they were fellow workers with me, they shared in my struggle. Uh, so they were really people that he honored. He'd obviously had some history in terms of fellowship with them, caught up in gospel work with him. And now, sadly, they are out of step with one another. And I assume that they were not just having a private problem. I assume that their lack of fellowship had church implications. Otherwise, I can't think he would address it publicly in this way in the letter, thinking probably these letters that Paul wrote to churches got read out. Um, that's the way that would have happened. When you got a letter from Paul, the church would be gathered, you read out the letter. And uh, this, this is a public problem, and not just a couple of ladies on the edge having a bit of a problem. And it well, may well be that people were siding with one or siding with the other. So it was a big deal and something that really troubled him. So Paul is writing uh, in order to bring about uh, some unity. And one of the great themes in the passage I've just read is this appeal to unity. And again, when I'm asked just to speak on a couple of sessions on Philippians, there are many things we could talk about, you know, the reference to joy and all this and so on. But I think this is one of the main burdens of the whole letter, that there should be unity. And this appeals to be one mind and one heart, one spirit, uh, tied together in the purposes of God. The language kind of reminds you a little bit of a rugby scrum. Uh, I never played rugby, but I've, I've become quite a fan of uh, watching the Six Nations, which is coming up very soon, and uh, watching rugby. These guys, when they, they lock together, and when they lock together, they're formidable. And Paul wants the church to be, as it were, locked together, not necessarily in that rather uncomfortable position uh, of a rugby scrum, but that sense of together you're a force, uh, not together you're in trouble. Uh, and they say in all sorts of settings, you know, political, political parties, if they're disunited, uh, they don't present a very attractive uh, thing to, to vote for and so on. So unity is a practical thing as well as obviously something God delights in and something we should seek. So in verse 27 of chapter 1 that I read to you, um, the NIV writes in this way, whatever happens, as citizens of heaven, live in a manner worthy of the gospel, standing firm in one spirit, striving together with one accord for the faith of the gospel. And, and Paul uses this uh, phrase of being citizens of heaven again later. Sorry, I'm a bit throaty. Uh, later in the epistle where he says, our citizenship is in heaven from whence we await the Savior. And he uses that language a little bit probably because uh, Philippi was a Roman city and it had been given a, a, a kind of public recognition which they really prized. It was something huge for them. I went to, uh, uh, once I was uh, on the west coast of uh, North America, went to a place called Victoria, and it's a lovely island, but it's kind of more English than England. Uh, it's fascinating. And some people from the USA take their vacations in Victoria if they can't afford to come across to England, because you get double-decker buses and all sorts of funny things that 
It's almost like London, it's like England. And uh, it's kind of reproducing England. And, you know, we were involved in India, uh, have been for years as New Frontiers, and I've often been into India. I've been into uh, a hotel, and the restaurant, the restaurant is like, like England used to be. It's, like, it's kind of, whoa, this is weird. There's more English than England. And, uh, and there in Victoria, you, you see a long, a long queue of people lining up for the scones and jam. And you know, like, like they have in England, like we have all the time, don't we? Uh, it's, uh, it's, like, it's like, this is England. And, and Philippi was a place like that, but it was, it was not just a kind of a fad. It was a big deal that the emperor had, had, had said Philippi is like a Roman colony. That's why when Paul is put in prison, you may remember back in Acts when he's in Philippi, and they've beaten him and put him in the stocks, and then the next day say, you can go. He says, I am a Roman citizen. They think, ah, what have we done? Because uh, we're not supposed to do that. Uh, you know, we're a Roman city. We're supposed to keep these rules. And so they were letting down their citizenship by putting him in prison. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. And... Uh, and so he, uh, he, he sometimes plays on this. Like, we have a citizenship that we've got to live up to. Must live up to that standard. That citizenship, look, it's coming from everywhere. Thank you. Uh, there's, a, there's a citizenship that, that is, is appropriate. And so Paul uses that language to say, hey, come on. We have a citizenship from heaven. We're an outpost from heaven. Come on. Uh, this isn't just, just Rome. We belong to another, another kingdom from whence we await the Savior. Interesting, the, 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 the emperor was called Savior of the Empire, one of the names he used. And so he uses that. We, we await the Savior, not a word Paul often uses, but here he does. We await the Savior. And the so the emperor would visit sometimes, you know, like Donald Trump coming to... Anyway, like a... But... Uh, <laughs> Rid your mind to that. Uh, but it's like he's coming to visit us. And so Paul borrows that language sometimes to, uh, to say, look, but we await the Savior. We belong to him. And he can, he's, he can change our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. He can do things that the Caesar could never do. By the power he has to subject all things to himself. You know, Caesar's got some power, but nothing like our Savior. So he uses that language. He says, no, come on, make that kind of thing. Go for that kind of stand. He says in verse 2 of uh, chapter 2, make my joy complete, being of the same mind. There's this language again, the same love, united in one spirit, intent on one purpose. So he's again just saying, look, this is the goal. This is the objective. We should be united. That's what God wants amongst us. But then he leads into... Actually, what's one of the most sublime passages in the New Testament, and that's really what I want to just look at with you. And uh, he, he quotes what most commentators would say is a hymn, uh, which are familiar words to us. We know our New Testament. Uh, he being in the form of God did not count equality with God as thing to be grasped. It's not obvious to us in our English text, but uh, if we're looking at a Greek text, you can see it's poetic. The way it's set out, it's, it's probably borrowed, it's probably a hymn that was known in the early church. There's some debate, is it a hymn that Paul wrote, or it was a hymn that's already written, which he just brought into the text of his letter. 
and uh, any commentary you read will make these kind of references that he's quoting now this beautiful, beautiful statement about Christ. And really what he's saying is this. You know, in relationship, this is the thing that overshadows everything, that should overshadow our attitudes to one another, our self-awareness, our awareness of one another. It all lives under this extraordinary thing that Christ has gone through this incredible step-by-step downward uh, event, this breathtaking event, the most breathtaking in world history, really. And that has had huge impact on our lives. It should overwhelm and transform our lifestyle. And so that's, again, when we're talking about the things we spoke of in the first session, it's because we've, been, we've met this wonderful Savior that's changed our values and changed the way we read things. So let's just go through this poem. All right? So it says, He existed in the form of God. He was very God. He was, it says in John, the Word was with God, the Word was God. God with God. True, full divinity. Light of light, true God of true God. Begotten, not made. One substance with the Father. This is the one we're talking about. He says, without him was nothing made that was made. And we just need to stand back a bit and think about this. Uh, recently, uh, my wife on her laptop saw something that um, was from the Hubble's telescope, where they've got this telescope out now further and then projecting into the sky this incredible thing. And it was, it was uh, an area of just one section of the Milky Way. Amazing, really. Just one section. You saw this grand sweep, and then it just went into this one section. And looking at this one section, and then it opened it out, opened it out, and opened it out. And you're looking at billions, billions of stars looking at this one section of this part. It's not like it went like this. You know, it's just looking here. And there's and billions, billions of stars. You, you look at it, you're staggered. And the Bible says, without him was nothing made that is made. This is what we're talking about. That he is, the, uh, he is the agent of creation. He was in the form of God. He created all things. And you think, wow, this is the one. This is the one we're talking about. That this one who created all things. The one it says of Isaiah, it says in John twelve forty one, Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. In other words, Isaiah 6, which says, I was in that temple, I I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Holy, holy, holy. And and he said, I was, I fell. Thank you, that's that's helpful. (laughs) Thanks, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Sorry, I'd lost my voice completely the day before yesterday. So, so glad it's come back. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, look for the letter to fall off there. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the one that Isaiah saw, he says, you know, the, the angel, the cherubim, they're covering their faces, they're saying, holy, holy, holy. And uh, R.C. Sproul, a great theologian who died a few weeks ago, he wrote a magnificent book called The Holiness of God. 
And he points out that in the Old Testament, it doesn't say it was very holy. It says it was holy, holy. And uh, he talks about there are deep pits, one passage in the Old Testament. And, and, and it, says, it doesn't say in the, in the Hebrew, deep pits. It says there are pit pits. But the, we can't say pit pits. But that's the way they say deep pits. So he said, if you fall in a pit, you're in trouble. You fall in a pit pit, you're in real trouble. <laughs> and so he said, that's the way they say, holy, holy, holy. Like, we can't describe it. This is the one. And he said, I was, now our Bible word undone is not very helpful. I was ruined, it says in some translations. The word literally means lamed, like I couldn't stand. I just overwhelmed. I, I saw him. I, I, and then John just says in John 12, Isaiah speaking of him, he saw his glory. Talk about Christ. This is the one. This is the one who was with God. Holy, holy, holy. John 17, verse 5. He's praying to the Father, Lord, I'm, I bring back to the glory I had with you before the world began. The glory I had with you. John on the Isle of Patmos. So I saw the Lord, I fell as one dead. I mean, this is who we're talking about. This is who we're talking about, that he took on human form. And, uh, you know, he just comes through Christmas, and it's so easy, isn't it, to, to kind of miss the magnificence of it, the greatest thing in world history, that the creator became a human being. And it's full. Paul says in, in, in Timothy, he says, great is the mystery God was manifest in the flesh. And it is, it's vast mystery. But that is what we're saying. That God who created everything, who's holy beyond any kind of approach, took on a human form, became a, a child. He became a man. And it says he didn't regard his divinity as something to be grasped. Apparently a hard word to translate. There's a Greek word, harpag, harpagmos, it's nowhere else used in the whole New Testament, so it's hard to say what it means that there because it's nowhere else. And, and, the, and, and the translators, the, the serious students, they say it, it means he doesn't have anything. He didn't exploit his position. He didn't take advantage of. He didn't use to his advantage. He didn't see his godliness as something that excused him from the task of redemptive suffering and death. He said, hey, that's not appropriate to me. He didn't, he didn't say, no, that's not, that's not right. You know, he didn't say, no, I demand justice. It's not appropriate. Why should I suffer? No, he didn't count equality with God or something to find as his escape route. But actually, it's his place of perfect qualification for this horrific role that he's going to fulfill. And Paul is writing to a church where there's murmuring and complaining. And we read in the passage, no, don't murmur and complain. These two stop them arguing. And notice this difference. He doesn't just say, come on, sort it out. He doesn't just come into that world. He goes right up into this world. He says, look, this is who we are. This is who we are. And, and this, who, who, we are saved through this. How can we ever say, well, she spoke to me? Or the way he dealt with me? You know, what are you talking about? Because this overwhelming reality that the God who made everything, who's so holy, took these downward steps to save us, it changes everything. 
It changes who do I think I am to say, how dare you speak to me? How dare you? Why wasn't I on the list? No one told me. Come on, have you not seen how you happen to to be a saved person? What it costs God. And that, that seeing of this truth should just change us so radically inside that we don't take offense with one another. We don't break up with one another because we're not created. We've been changed. Seeing him has just done a job on us so that we're full of mercy for one another, full of, full of kindness, full of acceptance. We're not, we're not making trouble with one another. And this, this one came down and took on human form. He didn't demand something that was appropriate to his awesome majesty, being being equal with God, it says he emptied himself. Now, again, it's a very difficult passage. It doesn't so much say what he emptied himself of, but what he emptied himself into. And this is one of the mysteries. He emptied himself. What does that mean? He, now, it doesn't mean he ceased to be God. All that happened to him happened to him as God. And he is very God and he's very man. He's not half and half. He is God and he is man. And, and I, we just have to be careful of some people, <clears throat> for instance, I don't want to be controversial here, but Bill Johnson and, from Bethel says in one of his books, he left behind his divinity. Now, his motivation in doing that is probably a very good motivation He's wanting to say to us as Christians, we can do stuff by the Holy Spirit. Jesus did. And there's many places you can say that in the Bible. Uh, when, when Jesus says he did it by the Spirit and so on, it says of him. And so Bill Johnson's trying to encourage us to see, hey, we could do more. Look what Jesus did. But he goes too far. He says he left his divinity, which the Bible does not say. He, he went through all this as God. He, he accepted worship. Uh, only God does that. <laughs> he forgave sins. He says, your sins are forgiven. Only God can do that. He acted as God. He accepted worship. He forgave sins. When he hushed the storm, surely he's acting as God. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, there came that moment where suddenly his being God is uncovered. And not like Moses, who could cover it over with a cloth. His very clothes couldn't contain it. His clothes were full of light and glory. So we must not say he left behind his deity. He emptied himself, not of deity, he emptied himself into becoming a servant. That's what the, that's what the text says. The text won't allow us to put in it words that aren't there. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself into servanthood. That's what the passage says. And so it's a very difficult passage. And I, I'm talking about a passage that whole books and books and books have been written just on these few verses because it's one of the most sublime passages on the person of Christ. But for us, us kind of ordinary Christians we want to be, it's not so much trying to dissect the verse but feel the weight of it because Paul is using it that way, saying, look, come on, guys, get your act together. Then he goes into this amazing hymn and comes out the other end of it. And so, so do all things without 
murmuring, complaining. Come on, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God's at work in you. And so he's appealing to them, not just knocking their heads together. He's saying, come on, remember who we are. And remember how we became who we are through this incredible price that he became man. He really did become man. So that people could say, isn't that the carpenter's son? Now there's Jesus doing He's the carpenter's son, isn't he? And he grew weary. He was tired. He was so tired that he's in a boat asleep when it's being thrown around by a storm. That's how human he became, exhausted. And it says this too, which again, it's such a hard verse. He learned obedience through suffering. He took on human form and learned to live as a human being. He, and he learned obedience through what he suffered. He took the form of a servant. So God stepped down not to become emperor of Rome or king of somewhere, which would, we could argue be appropriate. He took the form of a servant. It's ridiculous. And in human form, he had... He had no, as a slave really, when we say a servant, it means a slave. And it, it doesn't mean a slave like, we often, when we think of slavery and the Bible's references to slavery, you've got to kind of forget um, North American slavery, which was so brutal. Slavery in the Bible was not so brutal, but you didn't have any, you didn't have any freedom. You belonged to somebody else. You know, you just belong to people. You didn't make choices. You wish I'd go on holiday this year. You know, you're not going anywhere. Um, you're a slave. Uh, and he made, it, he made himself a slave. And, and he lived, worked it out. Uh, you know, that lovely John 13 passage where they're all having supper together, the Passover, and he disrobed. And he took the position of the, of the slave and washed their feet. He became a servant. And it says he became obedient even unto death. And then it says even death on a cross. And Peter Lewis in his wonderful book about Christ says the step down from divinity to humanity was huge. The step down from humanity to the cross is just as huge. Even death on a cross. Now, our view of the cross gets so distorted down through the centuries because for us the cross is a religious symbol. <coughs> it wasn't in these days. It wasn't remotely a religious symbol. So we think of a cross, you may even have a cross stamped on the front of your Bible or on top of a cathedral or jangling around your neck on a necklace or two pieces of wood hammered together somewhere. You know, the cross for us is a religious symbol. It really wasn't then. It was the most ugly, treacherous way of killing people ever invented. And, and we just, we, we, the Bible doesn't describe. Sometimes I've heard in the past, you know, don't talk about the cross because the Bible doesn't. <coughs> it doesn't really describe it. But to be honest, they didn't have to describe it. They all knew what crosses were like. And so they didn't have to say, for us, you think, well, I wonder what it was quite like. And we tend to have medieval paintings, which don't help us, of a figure that's just like standing there, or almost, on this sort of very religious thing. 
And usually with the one of Jesus higher than the other two. It's kind of very religious. And, and it wasn't. It was just a foul way of executing slaves. You wouldn't, you wouldn't ever crucify a Roman. I mean, and, and Cicero, famous man of that generation, said he didn't even want the word cross used in polite society. It was so disgusting. And, and Rome ruled the nations through terror. And they imposed what they called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, on the nations virtually through the cross. And that's fascinating that we can see that in a different way. But they imposed their rule. They were brutal. They were a very frightening army. And, and if someone opposed them, they just crucify them. And literally, I'm sure many of us know the story of Spartacus and the slave uprising. And they crucified thousands of slaves. They just hammered them to wood. And, and so, beloved, we need to see this isn't just some pretty thing. This is the Lord of glory. And this happened to him as God, the man and God. That we crucified God. The human race crucified the creator. We didn't just put him to death. It's not like a modern, you know, even, even America, the electric chair, and they put a thing over his head. No, no, you don't cover shame. It's full of shame, this thing. I'm not sure how much I've been more and more aware recently that um, we in the West tend to talk about guilt. Whereas more in the East, they talk about shame more. It's a shame culture, awareness of shame. And we're more aware of guilt. But I think, to be honest, as Christendom is fading, I think we should be more aware that people are more and more aware of it's not so much guilt. People don't care so much about guilt, but they're not so happy about being found out. It's the shame factors beginning. We should realize how important this is for us, even in the way we share the gospel, that he died to take our shame as well as our guilt. And that would be very, if you're going into a, a Middle East or Eastern culture, to bring this out is very, very clear and helpful because shame is a big deal. Because you don't want, if you're, it's, you could bring shame on the family. You bring shame on us. You brought us shame. And, uh, and so the cross deals with all that. And what happened at the cross is the most terrifying way of someone having to die. That, and it's prolonged, and it's horrific. And so for us, Paul is writing this letter to a church where, yeah, there are differences and breakdown of relationships. And so Paul uses like a huge hammer to hit this nut and say, look, you just need to realize who we are. Have this mind in you. And then he says, which you have. We'll come back to that later. Which you have in Christ Jesus. It's not like there's a model, try and, try and imitate it. He's going to say, actually, you have this mind in you. You've been born of God. You have his spirit inside you. But look, this is what his spirit was like. This is, this is, this is what our God is like. This is the greatest revelation of God in all history. God, most of all revealed in the cross, more than anywhere else. And, and he's lifted up. It, the, the way it talks about he's being lifted up and glorified, it's almost that at the cross. I love that song we sometimes sing. This is Jesus in his glory, King of heaven, dying for me. This, you say, in his glory? Yeah, somehow, this is a revelation of God. And how much he loves us. And in paintings, you know, the lovely loincloth 
He would have been naked. The shame of it. Was just, it was just, and also, obviously, sometimes the cross is very high up. That's probably not necessarily so. Many of these crosses would have just been a face value, just been there in your face. They spat at him and so on. He wasn't necessarily thinking of him being very high up. There's no need for that. But it, it is like he took it completely. And, and that's something that when we've looked at it, it should just set us free from all self-importance. Well, I think, you know, in my humble opinion, I think God's not interested in it, even in your humble opinion. <laughs> it's, it's, it, that, all that arrogance that we can find in our flesh sometimes things have happened to us in our past and we, we fight for our rights and we fight to be heard and of course that's a very modern word these days isn't it, our rights that's, that fills our newspaper the rights of this group and the rights of that group and it, it's in the culture what about my rights uh, and we can bring that with us into the church and yet when we come through the church you come through a very na- into the church you, you come through a very narrow way through the eye of a needle, we come. Oh Jesus, you, you took my life. You took everything, and, and so Paul is saying, "Come on, this is the background. That it was the most horrific, shameful, terrifying, disgusting form of criminal execution ever invented. It was invented to terrify the nations and to bring them under the power of Rome. That's what was happening." And this is happening to the God who created all those stars. And without him was nothing made that was made. And he went down into that. He emptied himself to conform and even death on a cross. And so when, when Paul talks about not being ashamed of the gospel, he's going out to the world, to these uh, Greek and Roman cities, preaching someone who went through that. And so for the Jew, it's outrageous. As the Gentiles, utter nonsense. How could your God go through that? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We tend to try and put that in a modern world about not being ashamed. But for them, there's real shame. Our, our God was crucified. Some of you did outside the city. You don't do that in the city. Put them outside with the trash. And Jesus went through all that for us. And and And... On the cross, again, these pictures is just a sort of still figure. But apparently, one of the ways that people died on the cross was that they couldn't breathe because the downward pull of your body affects your lung capacity and they'd be fighting for breath. And so actually on the cross, they would have to pull themselves up and you can't imagine that pain in order to fill their lungs and as, otherwise, they just gradually can't breathe anymore. It's being pulled out of shape. Because I could never understand. Why did they say, go and break their legs? And apparently, they, they forced themselves up in order to breathe. So, are they dead yet? I'll break their legs. You break their legs, they won't be able to breathe anymore. That'll be the end of it. And, and so, it's utterly brutal. And that's what our Jesus did for us. That's what our Savior, our beloved Savior, did that for us. And God did that for us. That he was smashed to a cross with all the shame of it and took guilt. It's not like God said, oh, I forget your sins. God punished sin. I'm just reading a wonderful book called The Crucifixion that's just come out. I noticed Andrew 
who's with you now, recommended online, and I got it. It's just magnificent. And it's so helpful to understand. And that, that he bore our guilt. And God has had to judge sin. I'm also reading a book about um, John Newton, who became a great pastor in London, had a great church in London, was a terrific guy, helped William, William Wilberforce, became a wonderful, godly man. <clears throat> but he was a slave uh, owner. He was the captain of a slave ship. And his background would have been absolutely disgusting. I mean, they just took these poor, poor lives. And it says in this book I'm reading about John Newton that all these, all these captains would have raped a number of the women who were slaves on their boats. That's just what they did. I mean, his life, his background was terrible. No wonder he says, amazing grace. I wrote that wonderful hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. But someone's got to pay. So that's it. Someone's got to pay. And we, even on the news yesterday, you hear about somebody's been through this, and, and the, but they've only given this. They've only given them like a two years, and that my kids got killed, and someone should pay. And sometimes as Christians, oh no, learn to forgive, learn to forgive. And we've got to understand that over the human race is a righteous God who is angry with sin. And that comes out in the Old Testament. He's furious with sin. And he can't just say, oh, forget it. It's okay, I'll be merciful. Someone's got to pay. How can John Newton walk free? Well, someone paid. How did we walk free? Someone paid. He really paid. And Jesus paid a terrible price. That we get, innocent, we get called innocent. You go, you're free, you're free. Why? How can I go free? The price has been thoroughly paid. That's why grace is so wonderful. That's why legalism is such a pain in the neck. It's so irrelevant as though you could do something. Jesus has to give me his righteousness. He's the one who pays the price and sets us free. But it's a real price and it was really paid. Jesus died that we might be forgiven he was crucified. And Paul says, <coughs> we know he's also greatly glorified and honored and so on, which I'm not going to press on too much, but apply it where it says, so have this mind in you, which you have. So I come back to this, which you have. It's like Paul is saying, it's not just a model, let's try and be like Jesus, which you think, how on earth can I do that? But you have this mind in you because you, you have the Spirit of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We have the Spirit of God. So ha- have this mind which you have. In other words, live out who you really are. Be affected by that and let it have its work on you. So <clears throat> the passage I closed with, have this mind in you which you have in Christ Jesus. Work it out. So he says, so work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that's the greatest brief definition of what it is to be a Christian in the Bible. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you. You work it out, God's at work in you. It's not just you, but it, if I can put it this way, it's not just God either. 
you work it out. For God is at work in you. God's at work in you. And so we, 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 we take responsibility. We don't say, well, you know, I'm Joe Blunt. Speak my own mind. Take me as you find me. No, you're pretty horrible as we find you. <laughs> we, we, I'm, I'm just honest. I'm blunt. No, that's not good enough. And sometimes we have to come up with language like this. I gave it over to the Lord. You know, I had this problem, but I gave it to the Lord. Well, where does it say that in the Bible? And people come up with, well, just let go and let God. That's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. What's in the Bible is, look, he tells us the price that was paid, which is magnificent. Then he says, now you work it out. You work it out, for God is at work in you. You work it out. I remember when Wendy, and she wouldn't mind me saying this, she put it in one of the books she wrote. We, we were in the first church we were involved in many years ago, and there was a lady joined the church, and we, it was a smallish church for only about 100 people at the time. And she, this woman just got on her nerves all the time. And she, 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 she told me this after. She did it on her own. She told me afterwards. She said, she said, I got on my knees and I said, God, you've got to get this woman out of the church. Because <laughs> she's, she's just a terrible woman. And she, she said, I don't, I don't know why I did it, I wrote down all the horrible things in this woman's life. I wrote them down. I said, Lord, you've got to get rid of this woman. And she said that I was just waiting there on God. And she said, God drew very near. And he said, I just see a perfect description of you in what you've written down. <laughs> so she was absolutely horrified. And, and, and so she said, God, I'm so sorry. And then she went to the woman and, and, and talked. She said, I just need to share with you. We don't hit it off, do we? And with great humility, talked out. And they became such friends. Years later, this couple moved on and we moved on and so on. But ever since, they were just great friends. She didn't just hand it over to God. She didn't say, well, let God do it. She, she worked at it. She got before God, probably wrongly. But she prayed, and, and it was open then to God. So right, let's work this out. So do all things without murmuring and complaining. Because the world does that all the time. That should be one of the marks of the church. Once I was with the New Frontiers team, we were having a, a two-day retreat. We were staying in a hotel somewhere up in the Midlands. And a guy was serving us, and uh, you know, the waiter. And he just, at one point, he interrupted us. I, was about, I think about, I don't know, 10 of us maybe. And he said, excuse me, gentlemen. Looked up, you don't often get this. He said, may I just say, it is such a pleasure to serve you. And I, I, you know, that was it. Kind of thing. I said, wow, what was that all about? And honestly, as we thought about it, we thought, well, I think probably on other tables, people just moan all the time, complain. And, so, and I think we didn't. And it's interesting where Paul says, do all things without murmuring and complaining, so you'll be lights. Just to, just to not moan, you shine. <laughs> and in our world of, you know, the, there is, it's horrible, all the time. It's, if it's, you know, it's the British Rail or Southern Rail, you know, there's so many things to complain about. You know, your workplace or this or the kids. You, it, you can live in a world characterized by moaning and complaining. 
And that's one of the great things God said about Israel as they were walking through the wilderness. They moaned and complained. And God says, I don't want that. And we work out our salvation because actually we have this spirit in us. This spirit that did all those things. That went down from the glory to the cross. Uh, Now, come on, live out the spirit that's in you. Have this mind in you, which you have in Christ. Work out your salvation. Don't murmur, don't complain. So this is the... This is the culture of the New Testament church. This is what you'll find as you work through Philippians. And I want to pray that God will help us in our groups and so on. And you'll work through this. You'll come across all this, of course, as you work your way through. But God help us to to shine like lights in southeast London for the glory of God. Amen? Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our life together. Thank you, things we've learned on the way. But Lord, we've so much more to learn. And we do pray that your spirit will keep opening our eyes, keep drawing us into your purpose. Lord, please bless these uh, couple of hours we've had together here. And as we continue, Lord, just keep on. Lord, change us from one degree of glory to another. Help us to make good choices. Help us in our family life, husbands, wives together, parents, children right across the small groups, right across church life. Father, just impress your beautiful style into our lives, Lord, for your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.